It was cold, damn cold. But it was also one of those magnificent nights when the stars were so clear, when the horizon so perfectly blends sky and earth, when one so entirely loses all entity in the infinity of beauty and peace that one wonders why ever sleep anywhere but under the stars. Likewise, in the course of 40,000 miles of motorcycling over the globe, it had often seemed to me that the state of civilization of any land can be adequately gauged by the condition of its roads. The Romans, the Greeks, the Assyrians, and the early Chinese all had counted roads among the primary ties of empire. The first step in the birth of any great nation is the development of its roads, their decay the first sign of disintegration. It says dirtbags in the title, we can do what we want. This is the Enlightened Dirtbags Podcast. My name is Jonah Condro. And I'm version two. In the first season of our podcast, we'll be discussing seven books about motorcycles. We're glad you're here. Let's turn some pages. You want to start us off with this fucking badass book? Today's episode is based on One Man Caravan by Robert Edison Fulton Jr. And I don't even know where to start. This guy has so many accomplishments in life. It's crazy to think that, like, you know, being one of the first people to circumnavigate the globe on a motorcycle would be enough. Yeah, he was the first guy to do it. I thought it was uh, Carl Stearns Clancy. Oh. I believe was the first. But there's, it's one of those things, you know, where it happened at a time where it's hard to say who the first person was because it's not all recorded that well. And also, there's been a lot of people that have been like, I did it, and then it turns out they didn't, you know, or they like went a weird route or they basically shipped their motorcycle all the way around the world and kind of rode a little bit. I think they've both been credited with it, but I'm pretty sure, I wish I could remember. Actually, I might have this saved because they talked about Carl Stearns Clancy in uh, Short History of the Motorcycle. And I think he did it in like 1812 or some. Oh, sorry. 1913. Only about 100 years off. Whatever. <laughs> uh, and so this, it would have been about 20 years earlier. Right. Okay. Is when they said he did it. Well, and even just like a throwback to a short history of the motorcycle, like they weren't even really sure when the first motorcycle was actually built. They're still kind of arguing over that right. date, right? So. Right. Yeah, and it's it's hard to verify, right? Like nowadays, any world records are set, there's like a representative there or whatever, and you have to like thoroughly prove. And it's happened all the time. It just happened recently with um, a new supercar that tried to like set a world record for top speed or something like that. And it turns out they kind of faked it a little bit in a way. <laughs> so like the equipment wasn't quite calibrated. So they're you're like 15 miles an hour slower than what it's actually showing. So it's it's always hard to tell, especially when it's when people set out on an objective like I'm going to be the first to do this, whereas I don't really think that's what he was doing here. He was just going to do it and then kind of realized later on that he might be the first. Let's just kind of do a recap here like how did this get kicked off? Cuz Robert Edison Fulton Jr. like I believe he was in architecture school uh in the UK and then he was like supposed to fly home, but then he's sitting in a dinner party 
Yeah, and they're like, oh, so you're flying home right away and kind of on a whim. Like he said, it had been something that had been half on his mind, but just on a whim to like seem impressive. And he kind of reflects on it later on that it was probably just to impress one of the girls at the dinner party. He <laughs> I goes, th- I think she had toffee colored hair. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he goes, uh, no, I'm not flying home. I'm going to ride a motorcycle around the world and kind of said it and was like, wait, shit. <laughs> It's out there now. It's been said, you know, and it just so happens that one of the guys at the dinner party owned uh, like a Douglas motorcycle shop and was like, yeah, like the factory. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, we'll give you a motorcycle and outfit it exactly how you want for this trip. And then you kind of have to, you know, you can't be like, hmm. Yeah, just kidding, you know, because it's like, well, what excuse do you have now? Like, you have the resources. His father's obviously not poor. Um, him himself being an architect, you know, he's got quite a few resources. And then you're given a motorcycle that's completely outfitted the way you want. So that was the moment where he just decided, all right, I guess I'm going through with it. I kind of like that you brought that up because Fulton Jr., like, when we were speaking briefly about this before we started podcasting, but, like, one of his relatives, like, invented the steamship mm-hmm. and then fulton jr uh, his father obviously like fulton senior like was like the president of the mac trunk company yeah when he undertook this motorcycle trip in like 1932 and so like obviously if, if he's studying abroad and people are just giving him things like he's got the resources to do this right absolutely but also it was still when he said he was going to do it his family and friends and whoever were just kind of like why why don't you just follow the path you're on? You have, you're set to be, you know, very successful on the path you're on. Why would you go out of your way now to go do this? Which is kind of a recurring theme that we see quite a bit. You know, they said the same thing uh, to Che Guevara. That's right. Yeah. He's They're like, because like, he was doing a medical degree. Yeah. And he was like, I'm a in year Alberta. Away. Yeah. yeah. Or like becoming doctor. Yeah. They're like a year away from finishing. And they're like, mm, let's do this crazy motorcycle trip. And everyone's like, what are you guys doing? You know, and in both of these cases, it turns out to be a life-changing experience. You know, obviously, he's written a book about it, which he wasn't even planning on doing, which we also see that in pretty much every adventure book that we've tackled so far, and also in the one that comes next, which we can get to in the next episode. But it always seems like they never are like, I'm going to ride around the world and write a book about it. They ride around the world, and then some way along the way, somebody is like, are you going to write a book? And they're like, oh, it hadn't really occurred to me. Somehow, you know? Like, yeah. It's, it's crazy. Like, it's sort of an afterthought, right? Yeah. Fulton left in like 1932 on this Douglas twin motorcycle, right? He gets it all set up. Boom. He's leaving the UK. Off he goes, right? Now, here's one thing. And uh, we had talked about it when we were doing the podcast about uh, the motorcycle diaries with Shea Guevara. It's like, we know what happened to Shea, right? Because we know that he ends up like becoming a revolutionary. So we're kind of like reading this knowing sort of we, we'd already sort of peered into the crystal ball, right? Which right. is history. And so in this case, in like 1932 and in like 1933 is when Fulton actually arrives back home. Yeah, 18 like, months or something, I yeah. think it was. And like in 1933, like that year always stands out to me because that's the year like Hitler took power, right? And so we know the Second World War is coming, right? right? Like this is, you know, this is almost 100 years ago that he had left on this motorcycle trip. So, you know, anyways, I was reading this book knowing that the world war is coming. The second world war is coming, right? And so it sort of makes it for like a very interesting read because you know something substantial is coming down the pipe, but 
you know, the the narrator and the rider on this motorcycle trip has no idea, has no idea how right. how much the world is going to change in just in, you know, in, in a decade. And there was actually a couple interesting moments in this book where I had thought about that um, just because we're so used to living in a time frame where all of that is part of the past. It's already happened. And so like when he goes through Afghanistan, the opinion of Americans in Afghanistan is entirely different than you tend to hear it is now, you know, just from everything that's happened since. Or when he arrives in Nagasaki and you're like, oh, yeah, right. There's some significant events that <laughs> haven't exactly occurred in Japan yet, you know. Well, and you know, we're going to spoil the hell out of this book, but and you know, when he's in Japan towards the later part of the novel, right? Uh, by then, the media has sort of caught on that he's you know circumnavigating the globe, and there's this Japanese motorcycle club that wants to see him off. I think they're going to ride to the harbor where he's going to get on a boat and finally sail back to the states. Yeah, and I think there's like a moment where he's like, you know, the motorcycle is going to what is going to be something that unifies the Japanese and the Americans. And you're like, man, like. The Americans dropped fucking two nuclear bombs, like two atomic bombs on Japan. You're like, fuck, you know, like. I'm sure it's a path that he never would have seen coming, you know, and it's crazy to think like he feels like he sees the world a certain way. And there's so much to divide the world that happens very shortly after that. It'd be interesting if a guy could hear his thoughts about the way the world's changed and how he saw those places back then and how they might be now. But. Of course, it's another one of those scenarios where, like, if you could sit down with the author, <laughs> maybe we should stop reading such old books. So this is just sort of like uh, a bit of an overview that I had, or a thought that I had about sort of like the book in its totality, is it almost seems like it reads like historical fiction. Now, I don't want to be, like, disparaging towards the author, and I don't want to sort of, like, take this book down a notch, because that's definitely not what this piece of writing deserves but it's very much he's the main character obviously he's the narrator but there's like these weird sort of vignettes that sort of happen right where he's quoting uh something that somebody else said on the trip and it really makes it interesting because there there's almost like little stories within a stories right uh it's like those uh russian nesting dolls like the matroska dolls right oh yeah where you like can open it up and then there's another one another one so there's like these weird moments and the, the one that comes to mind there was like a a British, I don't know if he was a pilot or if he was in the military, but the plane goes down and then, or I can't remember what happens, but then like the rescue plane like breaks its landing gear trying to save this guy. And then there's like this Afghan holy man. Well, they had, yeah, so it was two people, uh, British guys that were just out in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan and obviously a dangerous place to be alone as a, as a, as military personnel. And they kind of found this wandering holy man. That's right, yeah. Um, who for some reason had kind of taken to believe that one of them was this like religious figure that had like been born again or had been like come back to earth or something. So they just kind of... I think it was alluded to like the this Afghan holy man thought one of them was like Gabriel, like yeah. reincarnated, right? Yeah, you and know? so they were like, well, that seems like a good way to keep this guy on our side. And they realized <laughs> that wandering with this holy man kept them safe because no harm is going to come to somebody that's with the holy man. And so they just kind of let him believe that this person is Gabriel. And then the rescue plane crashes because um, it's just like super rough territory, tears the landing gear off. And so the holy man goes, well, if this person really is Gabriel, like why is there no shrine to him? Or like we should make something, a temple or something. 
And so they go, yeah, you're absolutely right. We should create some sort of monument. And so they spend like multiple days in the desert, just like scavenging rocks. And they played up this whole thing about how, oh, it has to be only these specific rocks and we'll lay them out in this certain way. And they kind of just fool this holy man and make a runway and then rebuild the airplane. And then one day they're just like, bye. Yeah. (laughs) And take off into the sky. (laughs) And that holy man's probably been telling a fucking wild tale to everybody ever since. Oh, 100%. But this is something that didn't happen to Fulton Jr., right? Like, this is something that he's recounting in the book. And so that's what makes this book very rich, because it's not so much about him going here, meeting this person, and then doing that. There's, like, these, like, uh, historical perspectives that are sort of peppered uh, throughout the book. And so when I say, like, it sort of reads like historical fiction— what I'm trying to get at is, is like, this is like a very sort of interesting sort of slice out of like the chronology of like history, right? Mm-hmm. And so reading it, you you can kind of get like almost historical facts through the sort of myth that is being retold, the myths and the stories, right, that are being retold through the perspective of Fulton Jr., right? And so I think that's that's one thing that I wasn't really in- expecting when I picked up this book to read. And it was like sort of really refreshing and invigorating, right? Because it just like, I kind of didn't want the book to end. Right. Yeah, no, I was exactly the same way. And I found it was really helpful for understanding the people and the place that he's in. Because not only, you know, are we talking about extremely remote areas, but we're talking about extremely remote areas in the 30s, where like, if you own a refurbished 30s pickup truck now... Getting around the city is annoying, you know, (laughs) like a city with perfectly paved roads. I had a 67 pickup with power nothing, and it was really annoying. You know, so you're talking about a 30s pickup in the desert. So access to resources and transportation, it's just, it's ridiculous to comprehend from our perspective. And then you, so you really can't understand the world these people live in. And then again, we try to tend to look at it from the cultural perspective that we have, where we've grown up over here which just doesn't have the same history. And so him telling these stories, like there was another one about that, the battle over that princess with right. like yeah. multiple siege, sieges had been waged. And there was kind of like a weird Trojan horse scenario that had also kind of happened. Yeah, because that was in India, right? Yeah, with like, telling the story. they were yeah. like, oh, we'll send over like the, our princess and all of these, her like harem of, of uh, maidens or whatever the term would be. And then instead they just filled the elephant like uh, coverings with soldiers. Yeah. And just like, so it was like, it kind of gives you an idea of the way these different people have battled over centuries. And, and it get just this, it's just rich with historic facts and stories. And it kind of gives you an understanding of the culture of these people and the history of how the, way, the ways they've lived and what's divided them over time. And so it really helps you understand the world that they live in and why these little tribes might have been battling forever and for reasons that we can't really seem to understand and it's not enough to just go this tribe doesn't like that tribe and so that caused some complications on the trip it's like he would tell you these stories and you go oh i can really understand now this deep-seated hatred between these two groups of people and how that could if you're traveling through that area and you don't really have an allegiance to either it could really really complicate things and also how you know, you're on a motorcycle, you have, you know, a firearm with you and you have a fairly nice gear and money and whatever and how they might see you as, you know, kind of a a wealthy target. Well, and that's the other thing is he was packing around like 
how many thousands of feet of film. Yeah, four thousand feet of film. Yeah, and so he could like, and he um, he had a camera with him, not just taking still images, but he's like taking video images, right, of these places that he's been, right. So not only is he like sort of been a trailblazer in the sense that he's like, yep, I'm just going to going around the world on a motorcycle. Not really sure if I'm the first one, but I'm definitely one of the the first few that did it, right? Yeah. And then, oh, by the way, I'm going to film everything as I go, which would have been mind-blowing, right? Because like, it's not as ubiquitous as we even understand it. It wouldn't have been as ubiquitous in, let's say, 50 years ago from mm-hmm. the recording of this podcast. Like, to record something on film, it's just like, wait, what? You know? And so then there's this added layer of uh, sort of like encumbrance that he's like taking on because I think he sort of like begins, especially in Afghanistan, like he, I think he sort of begins to understand that this is really something unique that his eyes are able to see being on that trip, right? And right. so I think he 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 takes. Uh, there's this sense that I get that the the sheer value of that sort of like video footage is just sort of accentuated just based off of like him traveling through Afghanistan specifically, right? Right. Well, and it's like you know this footage is is illegal in many places. And so you'd think like, oh, well, it's easy to just sneak footage of things. Well, not when your camera weighs like 60 pounds or whatever. <laughs> it is. It's massive. And it, he runs into complications with it all the time because you have to care for this film pre and post filming. And you're like trimming little pieces. You need to know how much you have. It can't be exposed at all to light. So there's a scene. I wish I could remember where he was. But he has this like complete blackout box that just has holes for his hands. So he can like wind and unwind the film pre and post filming and nobody has any idea what it is so he's just doing this in this village and (laughs) people start gathering around him because they're like well who's this strange white man with this black box and they're like start assuming that he's like a magician or something that's right and then he won't take his hands out of the box because he can't interrupt the process or the film is ruined you know and so people start kind of panicking because like well we can't see your hands and you won't take your hands out and you don't speak our language and you have this weird magic box and he said that a lot of it had to do with the fact that it was black. They're like, well, he's doing magic, and this box is black, so therefore it must be black magic. He's <laughs> like, a future reference for anyone doing a trip, make sure your camera film box is white. <laughs> yeah. It'll save you a lot of trouble. And he's like, the police officer is there, and everyone's kind of freaking out, and finally he gets it all done, and then somebody happens to show up, some young fellow shows up that speaks English, and he's like, bad time (laughs) yes i'm having a very bad time and then he explains to the guy what's happening and the guy explains it to everyone else and all of a sudden they're like oh well never mind and they just leave because like well that's not exciting at all they're just over it but just this you know trying to do this very important task you've got this footage that's you know nobody has ever filmed this before like he took huge risks to get this footage in afghanistan after multiple times of being told he's not allowed to have it and after being notified by government officials at the border of Afghanistan that they have been watching everything and they like point out a couple of things he's done and places he's been and things he has on him. So he knows that he's been watched this whole trip. Now let's just put a pause there for a second. And I think it's important to like when he's about to cross, when he's getting everything together and he's about to cross the border in from what is like uh current day Pakistan into Afghanistan. Yeah. So this is like the 1930s. And this border official's like, yep, we know you've been here. We know you've done that. By the way, we also know that you're carrying a revolver. And he's like, and at this point, like, and uh, I think you said it before we started recording, like, he doesn't need the revolver 
until like he uses it as like a tool like later in in the book yeah it's like back in the united states he uses a hammer or something because it's just (laughs) falling apart because he stored it like under his oil pan and he rode across the desert so the revolver is just all messed up but it just goes to show how closely he was watched because i don't even know if he ever really pulls it out anywhere no that and that's so it's just been hidden away under the bike to the point that he had forgotten he had it yeah until he was in the states but like crossing this border they're like we know you have this and it's like oh so you're really paying attention this is in the 30s it's not like they have you know video cameras and you know cell phones or drones flying around yeah it's just like how you know and but obviously like it's just it's really interesting just to sort of uh get surprised about how information can travel you know almost 100 years ago right on a motorcycle trip yeah well and especially places like that like it seems like a huge accomplishment for them to track him that much. But at the same time, you've got someone that barely speaks any of the languages. They kind of just have to go along with the people they come in contact with. And anyone could be some sort of informant. And you'd never know because it'd be so easy for them to fool you because you're basically a newborn child because you just like don't know the language. And if someone just beckons you in a certain direction, like there's so many times where somebody's just like this way. And he's like, well, I hope I'm not going to die. Yeah. But I need fuel or water or whatever it may be and that person might understand what i need so so it's just like who knows who he talked to at what point that would have gotten this information from him because it could have been anybody i there was a moment when he was in afghanistan and we keep coming back to you know to when he was in afghanistan but for me that was like probably one of uh, the most interesting of my favorite parts of the book Mm -hmm. is those chapters getting in and out of afghanistan but i believe he's fixing a tire he might be fixing his chain because he was trying to leave and it had been raining. And so like the mud had been building up around his yeah. fenders and stuff and broke his chain. Yeah, it kept stretching the chain out. That's right, and snapping it. So he's like trying to get his bike roadworthy again. And, you know, he's kind of getting pulled away by these Afghani tribesmen. And he thinks he's in trouble. And he thinks he's going to a firing squad because yeah. all these guys are holding rifles. And that's one thing that Fulton had pointed out throughout the uh, the book, especially when he's in Afghanistan, is like the Afghani's like they always are holding on to the rifle, right? Like next to anything else, like the rifle is like the most important, you know, thing that they own. Yeah. So he thinks that he's Fulton thinks that he's gonna he's in trouble and that he's gonna get executed, right? Because he's kind of caused this disturbance in like this village, and you know, like you said, they're just kind of waving him over, and then they just take him hunting, right? <laughs> yeah, he like I'm not going. Mike is scared for his life, and the like you're going and yeah. they like push him in that direction and then it turns out they're just like hey let's bring this strange guy on our hunt yeah like wait what <laughs> and they always make him shoot first they're like yeah. you shoot first and he always misses and and then i think but that was the night where that night he ends up at that crazy like ceremony and they're dancing around the fire the like, afghan sword dance yeah and they're swinging swords around he said just this whole group of people dancing and getting crazier on this fire swinging swords around like, he said running just, like, it was like yeah. a circle pit around this fire yeah and you just dance until you basically fall over and then you always have to have someone else get up before the last person falls over. People like almost hitting each other in the face with these swords and like what a wild experience to go from. Well, I guess these people are about to execute me to like, Oh no, they just brought me on this hunt and like took me into this ceremony and all this crazy stuff. Like it was really interesting, you know, and again, we find this, this is kind of a common theme in most of the books. Um, but this one especially is you hear about, oh, that next place. Don't go to that next place. Like multiple times he hears it in his book. He'll be at one little village and they're like, where are you going? And he's like this place. And they're like, no, 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 you can't. They're savages. Like they just eat people or whatever it is. You know, they're like, they kill people over there. 
And so you get to that area and you're terrified. And, and then it turns out the people are just super hospitable. They're just like, come stay in my mud hut or whatever it is. And like, we'll get you whatever you need. And here's food and clothes and come be part of our, you know, ceremonies and whatever. And it's just insanity. Like, even if it's kind of disturbing in some of those scenarios, like the tribesmen that bring them up into that tower and they like do a mock defense of their house and they're like firing guns out the windows and he gets knocked over a bunch of times and hit with a rifle because they're just so excited about showing off this like this is what we do we defend our house and then we go attack people at other houses and like it's just so crazy he's just terrified the whole time and then someone gets so worked up about pretending that they end up shooting a goat or something that's right yeah. and then they're just like Oh, kind of bummed out that they yeah. shot this goal. Yeah, right? and they're like, well, I guess that's dinner. You know, <laughs> but they're just in such a frenzy, you know. So it's these crazy scenarios where you're like, these people live wild lives, like that we could never even begin to understand. You know, like we might live in fear of somebody breaking into our house and probably never happened to most people. And there it's like, that's routine. Yeah. You know, it happens all the time. And that's a big part of, he says, a big part of why their firearms are so important to them. And uh, there was an interesting point where he's trying to get his bike into Afghanistan. And they're like, well, it's illegal to ride this pass. <laughs> That's right. The Khyber Pass. Yeah. They're like, it's illegal to ride motorcycles here. And he's like, well, well, that doesn't make any sense. You can drive it. They're like, yes, no motorcycles. So it turns out that a while before that, somebody had been riding a motorcycle through that pass. Another foreigner kind of unaware of, you know, the, the way the people lived there. And he was coming up on a uh, convoy of camels. And the motorcycle scared the camels, so the camel kind of like bucked a little bit. And it almost knocked this one tribesman's rifle off the camel. And so the tribesman reaches for the rifle, because again, it's their most precious thing that they own. The tribesman reaches for the rifle to try to secure it. And the guy on the motorcycle assumes that they're about to try to shoot him, and that's why he's reaching for the rifle. So the motorcyclist shoots the tribesman. And they just, it, they're like, these tribesmen are like, well, no, we need blood for blood essentially right yeah, and they, they call it blood money yeah well and they said there was what is it like an eye for an eye and two teeth for one or something like that yeah. where it's like it's not just like oh you shot one of our people we shot one of your people it's always like you shot one of our people we shoot two of your people like yeah. that's just kind of how it gets just this crazy tribal feud that's been going on forever and so the afghanistan government just said yeah no motorcycles <laughs> like not no traveling just like you can go in a car not sure. not anything about no foreigners with weapons, just this ridiculous rule of no motorcycles. And he does end up getting through, which is actually a really funny story because uh, he goes to the guy at the consulate or wherever it is that he goes to talk to. Because there's several, like, keep in mind, there's several checkpoints as you're sort of for sure coming through this Khyber Pass for into sure. Afghanistan, right? For sure. And so he goes to, you know, talk to whoever he needs to talk to. There's a translator there and he goes, I've been told no too many times and I don't want this translator to present my story because it could be kind of misconstrued and then I'm just going to get a no. So he asks if the if the official speaks English and the translator says no and he like, okay, well, what about like French or German? And he goes, oh, yeah, he speaks German. And so the official's like, yeah, yeah, German. So he goes, oh, well, so do I. So this is perfect. I don't need the translator. I'll tell him myself. So he goes through. <laughs> Uh, tells his story and why he needs in and all the complications he's had and tries to kind of plead his case. And the whole time the official's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and he's, he's speaking in German. And then so he gets to the end and he goes, okay, so you're going to, you'll stamp my paperwork. You'll let me through. And he goes, yeah, yeah. And then uh, so he turns to the translator and he goes, perfect. He said he's going to let me through. And the translator's like, no, that's not possible. You're not allowed through. It's against the law. 
and you also can't ride a motorcycle through. Like, there's no way you're getting through. And he goes, well, that guy just said, yeah. So they talk a little bit in their own native language, and it turns out that the official just wanted to show off that he speaks German, but it turns out the only word he knows is, yeah. <laughs> so he just kept saying, yeah, but now he's like, you know, they have this interesting honor system there where he's like, well, I've said yes now, so now I have to honor that and stamp your paperwork. And that's just the only way he got through. And then he gets to the other side, and the guy's at the other side of that pass. He gets to the gate, and they're like, you're not allowed to ride motorcycles here. And he goes, well, my paperwork's stamped. And they're like, that's not possible. There's no way they let you through. And so he kind of doesn't really tell them the story, and he's like, I'm here, and I couldn't get here unless I went through the pass on that side. And they're like, well, I kind of hope uphold the law here, so you're not allowed to ride your motorcycle any farther. And he's like 60 feet from the gate. Yeah. So they're like, figure it out, but you can't ride it. <laughs> so he spends like a couple days there or something, and he's got deadlines to meet. And so finally he goes, well, what if I carry it? And the guy like kind of laughs. He's like, oh, okay, good luck, whatever. So he just kind of does the like, what a lot of us on mot- uh, adventure bikes have done, if you have to like pivot on a trail or the bike's broken down and you need to turn it around in a tight area, you just drag the back tire a little bit, drag the front tire. You're just going sideways, right? And he just kind of like snake slides this bike like 60 feet across the border. And the guard is just kind of laughing like, good for you, man. Give her. See ya. Like, I can't. You didn't ride it. So, <laughs> all right. You crafty bugger, you know? And it's just one of so many, like, I don't want to tell them all, but I just want to reference the one where he gets into that military checkpoint and they have no idea how he got there. And they're like, there's no way there's so many, again, just, it's not possible. And he's like, they just let me through the gates all the way to here. And they're like, no, it's, you can't, it's military only. And it turns out it just had something to do with the helmet he had. Yeah. He looked like an officer. Yeah. He had bought this like secondhand <laughs> helmet that was like his son helmet and they're like well it turns out it happens to be some helmet that was only issued to like people of a certain rank in afghanistan in the british military or something like that or in india sorry yeah it was in india yeah so he just they just they're, saw him they're coming waving with this him helmet, through the blockade like, yeah go ahead go ahead and he was just like okay cool and he gets it they're like how how does this happen but he like thought he was gonna get arrested when he got there because they're like where's your pass he's like i don't have one they're like there's no fucking way that you're here without a pass this is like a military no man's land like there's so many gates but just crazy scenarios like this and they happen over and over and over again because like he's always ended up in jail like he'll like they just he'd show up to like continue on through spot and then the, the police would just be like follow me and then like essentially just lead him right into like a jail cell and that's where he'd stay for the night right oh exactly and then they would make him pay for his own cell yeah. Like you go to leave in the morning and they're like, no, you owe us this much money. Why? Well, like you I... used our prison cell. <laughs> you, you put me in here. I didn't ask to use it. And the amount of times like the one prison cell was like in a tower and had the walls had like fallen apart and there's no ceiling. And there's like three beds that are all just like just springs basically. <laughs> And he kind of like gathers what padding he can from the three. And he's in the middle of the night. They're like banging on the door to get in. And he's like, no, because <laughs> they had to climb up a ladder to get him in there. And then the guy fell off the ladder and broke it. So he had to like open the other door to let them in. And he's just like, I'm not going to. I'm going to pretend I'm sleeping. So they bang on the door all night. And then in the morning, they charge him extra 
because they're like, well, we were trying to put more people into this cell last night and you wouldn't let us in to the cell that we've locked you in with no charges. <laughs> and so we're going to charge you room and board for the other two beds also. <laughs> and he's like, these are hardly even beds. But again, there's so many times where you're just trying to explain your situation and trying to argue your way out of having to pay this money. And they're just kind of like, nope. All of a sudden they speak less English and they're just like, this is what it is. You want to leave, you pay it. You don't pay it, you stay. He speaks about this quite a bit using sign language. And it's not like he actually knows like American sign language. Like he's just using his hands to try to like. Or like drawing in the sand. That's right. Yeah. He does that quite a bit. Right. Uh, Cause I think there was a moment where someone was asking him, I think if, I think it might've been in Afghanistan, um, but I might not have that right. They were like, well, how big is America compared to like Afghanistan? So he sort of draws it to scale and they were kind of blown away, right? Yeah, they thought it was like basically the size of one state. Yeah, and I think in that same conversation, and it, and this this sort of speaks to the sort of uh, the like the militarism that sort of like persists throughout the book, right? Because he's always running into like police officers or military or, mm-hmm. you know, these sort of like armed tribesmen. Like there's there's very much like this sort of militaristic sense that you get that sort of pervades the book. And so he gets asked by some tribesmen, like, what's your rank? Oh, yeah, because they assume that if he's there, he has to be military. That's right. And he was just like, no, no. And they didn't even really believe him. So then he ended up lying to these tribes. And he's like, oh, I'm actually like a captain in the cavalry. And they're like, oh, okay, right? Yeah, because he comes to realize that like as they start to understand that he's not military, they, they're like, well, then you're useless. It was, I think it was once he was past India, but they kind of still live off of that caste system, you know, where like you ha- you're placed into certain ranks and positions and you wherever know, you're born, that's where you exist. Yeah, exactly. And so they're kind of like, well, if you're not military, you must just not be, cause they'd have no concept of like the CEO of a company or like what an architect is and why that has a high social value, you know? So he just kind of goes, Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I'm a captain. And they're like, Oh, captain, like, oh, it's so cool. And it's just like. And he's just like, how do I hold this facade? That was his bike had broken down and he was stuck in that tower. That's right. And yes. they're just like, you know, him and four guys that all have rifles that they have no idea why he's there. And they're just asking him all these questions. Again, like you said, in some, you know, botched form of sign language and drawings and whatever. And you're just communicating. But it is so cool to see how many times he's in a scenario where these people have never, probably never even been exposed to English for the most part. And of no information about the United States and you just you have to convey a message you just don't have an option a great example was when he he's in Turkey and he goes riding through the desert and he sees a bridge and he's like oh I can cross this you know riverbed like dried up riverbed but just terrible terrain that you can't ride a bike through he goes i can cross that bridge and just starts riding across it and finds out that it was never completed <laughs> and just falls through the bridge and gets knocked out and mashes the bike up a bunch and just wakes up like in this village, like a significant amount of time later. They like kind of half patch him up and they don't really speak any English. And he's like, well, I'll, I'll check on the bike. And he checks the bike and he notices like a significant oil leak. And he's like lost most of his oil and he's able to fix the leak, but he needs oil to get to the next place. And so he's just like, how do I convey this message? And he tries forever. And at first they kind of try to figure it out and then they just lose interest eventually. And I and think like, it was the kids. Yeah. The, the adults kind of leave. And then eventually one of the kids is like, ah, I understand, you know, like, 
he's drawing pictures and trying to like get drops of oil off the bottom of the oil pan and try to let them feel it. And one of the kids runs away and brings back this jug. And he's like, and again, like it's like a clay pot jug kind of thing, right? It's not a container of motor oil as we would imagine it. And he realizes that the local tribesmen will make oil out of mustard seed. So it's mustard oil. (laughs) And he goes, well, it kind of has some lubricating properties. I don't have any other option. So I'm just going to do this. And he pours it into the motor, starts the bike, and then realizes that, you know, combustion and uh, mustard oil creates mustard gas. So he's like riding across the desert basically just a motorized war crime <laughs> and if he like stops and idles in his own exhaust he's just gonna die that's right it's like but it got him there yeah and it was just this like archaic drawing in the sand and weird sign language and these kids finally were like oh i think i know what you're saying and they were because it's like a game to them and he said most of the time it was the kids that tend to figure it out that's one thing about being in a situation where you're clearly out of your element like obviously an american like riding through or riding across the world right and then you run into a situation where it's you got to find oil or you got to speak to these tribesmen that think you're a captain or you you're trying to explain like what you're doing with this black box but obviously like that isn't happening right like yeah, you're not casting any spells what yeah like one thing that i was thinking about is what would i do in that situation and then i always think of solutions that involve like like a piece of technology or something that I understand that only really exists in this time. And I'm like, he didn't have that. Yeah. Your solution wasn't invented for like 45 years. That's right. You know? So it only goes to show like, not only like, are these people like, uh, especially with like Shay and Alberto, uh, but even, you know, with like, uh, Fulton Jr. And then we'll come to see with some of these other motorcyclists in, uh, some books that we'll be reading and talking about on, future episodes is that there's sort of like this intelligence that sort of gets clicked on. You know what I mean? And it's, it's almost like this sort of like innate ability to figure stuff out because if you're presented with a problem sort of like theoretically, right? Like what would you do if you broke down into the desert? It's like, well, I'm not actually in the desert. I'm not actually broke down. So you really don't have a full understanding of that situation. And that's one thing that I really appreciate about reading a book like One Man Caravan is that you kind of see like this, this sort of like uh, road trip sort of street smart sort of come up, right? In a way that you don't really expect. Yeah, it's like your problem solving skills are born out of necessity. That's right. Because it's like literally your options are figure it out or stay here and die. Yeah. You know, it seems like it's really desperate and you seem like, oh, how many times can you be in that scenario and not actually die? But it seems like every time there's some solution or like an extreme amount of luck. Like how many times in these books has something happened? And then you're like, oh, hey, wait a minute. My solution's right there. Or somebody comes by that speaks English. But I think that speaks a lot to the willingness to help of people in a lot of these places. You know, like how many times here do you just walk past somebody that like looks like they're probably having a hard time of something? And we're just kind of like, mm, not my problem. Carry on. There, yeah. they're like, I speak a, you know, a minute amount of English. That person speaks English, and they're in a tough spot. One thing that I think about is there is uh, he called it the money problem, and this is again going back. To, I'm sorry, like when he goes to Afghanistan, like that's my favorite part of the book. Right? Oh, yeah, it's phenomenal. And he's got this money problem because he's got uh, rupees, right? And but he needs like the uh, 
uh, Afghani like crown or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's like a silver coin the size of a quarter, right? And so he, uh, before he like goes through that Khyber Pass, he's, he needs like these silver coins. So he has, you know, money, currency, the local currency to do stuff. And he's talking about having like pounds and pounds of these silver coins, right? And he actually had to like buy a bag, an extra bag to like hold all this like Afghani currency, right? Yeah. That's sort of like the the first and the last moment that he actually talks about having all all these silver pieces. And I think about what I understand of Afghanistan. Of course, it's sort of like an important sort of moment historically in in our time because like the war in Afghanistan, like the the Americans pulled out, right? And it's like Afghanistan was given back to the uh, Taliban government, right? And whether or not you agree with the Americans move, like Afghanistan was is sort of like a piece of like current news, right? Right. And so knowing what we know about Afghanistan and sort of knowing what we know about Fulton Jr. up to this point when he's like entering Afghanistan, particularly with all this money, and we know that these tribesmen like value their rifle just as much as their lives. Like think of how many times he could end up ended up dead and buried in the desert and no one would have known. No one would have known. No, absolutely. There's, there's no way that this would have gotten back. Yeah, he's not checking in via email or anything like that. Like you would go That's months right. without sending a letter. That's or right. It, you'd just be another person that disappeared. When I was rereading sort of like some of these sections when he's when he's in the Middle East and, you know, how he figures this out or how like the villagers like take him on this hunting trip or they they help him out. Even like you said, with uh, with the, the, the children, you know, bringing a jug of mustard oil, right? <laughs> It's like at any one of those moments, right? They could have just been like, yeah, no, thank you. Or even worse, robbed him, right? Mm -hmm. Worst case scenario, get robbed. There were so many chances for him if you thought and wanted to take that sort of uh, sort of criminal opportunity, right? But it didn't happen and he made it out. And so that's really interesting to me because it sort of speaks to that like the world is scary and we sort of understand a lot of what we don't understand about the world to be scary. Yeah. But he, he gets through it relatively unscathed. And so it's sort of like, in a way, it almost is like a feel-good, there's all like these sort of like micro feel-good moments throughout the book that you're just like, man, sometimes humanity sucks. A lot of the time it does suck, but like he's figuring it out, you know? And so it, it, it kind of made me feel good to read it that even in Afghanistan, somebody brought him in, gave him tea, or invited him to watch like crazy Afghani sword dance, and then off he goes again. Or just people that you can tell have almost nothing. And they'll just still give him like half of the very minute amount of bread that they have. Yeah. You know, like these people are on the edge of starvation at all times. But there's just this thing where if, like if somebody is in your house or whatever it is, you give them something. You protect them and you provide for them. And you, no matter how little you have, you know, like you said, it, just, it really does feel good to read that, especially when... He'd go from town to town or village to village, and they would be like, oh, no, that next place you're going to, there are savages. You can't go there. And then he'd get there, and he's like, these people are all very nice. Yeah. You know, not to each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Regularly murdering each other. But for this strange man on a motorcycle in the middle of nowhere, they're extremely helpful. You know, you'd crash your bike or wreck it or something, and a truck would come by. And they're like, yeah, load it up, man. It's just so crazy to think, like you said, there's so many times he could have died. When he goes through that massive desert area and just like routinely comes across like burnt down trucks and like crashed airplanes and dead camels and just this huge area of nothing. It was, it was almost like a Mad Max wasteland. Right, right. Right. And it's 
Like I can't imagine doing that now where a person could get a satellite phone and be able to get rescued in some way. But back then, where like you said, they even say to him before he goes out there, just if your bike falls apart, don't walk away from it. Yeah. Because this area is so massive that you just have to hope that somebody's going to come by and the likelihood of them seeing just a single person wandering around is very small. You're just going to look like a little rock somewhere. They're not going to pay attention. But at least if you're with your motorcycle, your collective mass is big enough for somebody to be like, hmm, maybe there's something over there and come by. But they're like, even then, your chances are so small. And he's just like, all right, off we go. <laughs> it's like, it's so crazy. Like the stories he's hearing of people being robbed in this area and just like left naked with broken down vehicles and all of their things taken in the middle of the desert. I mean, I'm sure he probably felt a lot more intimidated than he expresses in the book, but it's just crazy to think that for the most part, he's like, all right, well, thanks for telling me. Here we go. I would imagine most people would have turned around. Oh, yeah. You know, and it, and it's just, it's always again and again, he finds out that when he, you know, undertakes these tasks that seem daunting every time somebody's there to help him, you know, it's like, it's not never actually as dangerous or as scary as it seems to be at first. Because the people are just so willing to help. Or you just uh, you just overcome things. Like you said, like kind of out of necessity. You're in this spot where you're like, if somebody asked you what would you do in this scenario, you're, it, you're not forced to do it. And so you don't come up with a plan. But in that scenario, you, it just comes to you. There's a moment in the book that it's almost sort of like uh, like a short little story that you could easily forget about. And uh, he summers in the Middle East. And there's a, a caravan and there's someone that has this like odd looking pipe. I imagine it to be like some sort of opium pipe, like hanging from his belt. And he offers, I think this is like the the one time where you hear about like the the Afghan silver piece. So he offers mm-hmm. like a single silver piece to buy this pipe, right? And he's sort of doing this negotiation through like hand signals. And this guy agrees, right? So he like hands over the silver piece and this guy just runs away. Yeah. Like doesn't doesn't actually follow through with his end of the transaction and sell him this pipe. And so and there happens to be a group of like older fellows kind of hanging around. Yeah. And it's a younger guy that he's making this sale with. Yeah, that's right. And so he, he has to like chase him down, like bring him back. And then he sort of has to explain to the old boys that, well, no, like I offered this guy money so I could buy his pipe and then he didn't give me his pipe and, and he tried to essentially steal from me. And so like right then and there, you're an American in the Middle East like they could have just been like, yeah, man, this is a you problem. Yeah, you're fucked. Good luck with that. Yeah. Right. But like, no, they're like, they kind of like motion to like that young guy and he ends up handing over the pipe. And I think Fulton even says it. And he's like, I still have that pipe yeah. today. Right. Well, it's, it's such a memento of, of a significant human experience. Right. Like, like you said, they could have just, they could have even just been like, mm, don't speak any English. Or they could have been like, well, this is our fellow countrymen and you're from fucking whoever knows where yeah but they listen to the story they think it out and they tell the kid and he's like what what and he like tries to argue and they're like no 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 you agreed on that price for your pipe you give them the pipe it's so cool man like there's just so many of those scenarios where they're just there's like again this is interesting honor system that they follow no matter how barbaric some of their like um they're literally carrying rifles wherever they're going. Some of these yeah, tribesmen, like they always have a rifle with them. Yeah, some just some ridiculous traditions that just seem, I don't know, like out of a movie to us. Like we can't even imagine people doing 
these sort of things regularly, but there's just this honor system that they will not break. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. I loved that whole that whole section in the Middle East. Like there was just and like we could go on for hours telling these stories and probably not even cover them all. Just scenario after scenario. I just like, you know, rich with historical facts and like unique scenarios and crazy like things that like you would think was made up because it just seems you would imagine that writing this story and making it all up, you would have better opportunities to create these scenarios. But he actually lived all this. And it's just constantly full of like, oh, shit, what do you do now? Yeah. Like, are you going to get out of this? And you're like, well, you do. Obviously, you wrote a book, so you're not dead. <laughs> but you're still kind of like, man, like, does he get through all this? It's it's crazy. Like scenario after scenario where he's just placed in like life threatening scenarios that he just gets through. And this is in like the first third of the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're not even out of the Middle East yet. That makes me think about authors like putting space between an event, right, or a situation or uh, a journey and then doing the writing. Because I think in this case, he undergoes the this motorcycle trip in 1932 and 1933, 18 months, like you said earlier in the podcast. And I don't believe that the f- it was first published until... This book was published in like 1937. So he wrote it like almost four years later, right? Yeah, I have it written down here. The trip was in 32 and the book was written in 37. That's right. Okay. But I think we benefit from the fact that he had this camera and he like takes a lot of notes and he takes a lot of pictures and videos. So you have a lot of this, you know, kind of saved information. But even then, could you imagine going back trying to write this book? Like nowadays, you could go back and just Google all the places you'd been to and get this historical information, but you couldn't do that back then. That's like right. Trying to go back and research everywhere you'd been and the trips you'd taken would be an immense task. Because I, I think just to like sort of compare this to the Motorcycle Diaries by Che Guevara, it's like you're reading the diaries that he wrote on yeah. the road, right? And so I think you get a very different taste of their experience because i think for fulton is like you sort of get to like put that through a strainer distill a little bit and then it comes out a little bit cleaner it's more of a there's more of a polish on the narrative as opposed to if you're just reading diary entry after diary entry after diary entry right and i'm not saying that one method of writing is sort of better than the other but i think in his case he was able to sort of like really tie together this 18 month journey in a way that really keeps you engaged right to the end. And I, th- I, I believe I said it uh, earlier in the recording here that like, I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't want this book to end. I just wanted there to be like another chapter, right? Go back around the world again. Yeah. You know, turn around and do it all over yeah, again. Do it right? backwards. This, honestly, this is one of my favorite books I've ever read. Like, I just didn't want to stop reading it. And then, like you said, you get to the end and you're like, oh man, I wish there was more. And the crazy thing is, is like, this is just what he put in the book. You know, there's so many other things. 18 months is a long time and it's not a huge book, you know? I do believe in either, I think in sort of like a bit of the biography uh, of Fulton that follows uh, his book. I think he does end up making a film uh, out of like all the footage that he took. So that'd be really cool. Yeah, I think he, he did make a film. But one thing that I wanted to sort of uh, talk to you about is when we're sort of like getting together a reading list for for this podcast season, and there was some like, yeah, we have to do that one, uh, like Zen and the Art, right? Right, right. Um, and then it was like, well, of course, we have to read like Motorcycle Diaries. And then when we're bringing in like a very short history of the motorcycle by Hammond, it was like, I think this is going to be like... the the. As we were piecing it together, there was a lot of books, and we haven't—I certainly haven't listened listened them listed them all. 
uh, the ones that we're speaking about in this season. But like One Man Caravan was sort of like a question mark for us before we had even started the podcast, right? Because I remember we both sort of like, well, you know, there's this book called One Man Caravan and we were kind of like, yeah, okay, we'll put it in there. But like, we really weren't sure and like almost were sort of like, I almost sort of felt discouraged. Well, I think you said it's out of production now, right? It was. It is out of print, yeah. And so one thing that I was sort of wanted to like ask you is like, uh, and it already sort of has been answered in these last few minutes, but like, like in hindsight, like how did you feel just like judging this book by its cover versus like how do you feel it now, right? Well, <laughs> well, quite literally by the cover, I love this picture that's on the front. And like the way One Man Caravan is written, like it kind of looks, I don't know, I get this sense that it could kind of be a goofy kid's book. You that's know? right. It, it like, almost looks cheap. And right? yeah, and this picture is like this old like sepia tone picture of a guy like, kind of waddle walking this motorcycle through this heavy sand and he's got this goofy helmet on and shorts with knee-high boots and like I even have a note from one point one of my sticky notes that just says what is happening with that outfit <laughs> like the whole like it just looks like such a cartoon cover and so you don't really understand how rich this book is until you get into it but it didn't take me long you know like I really started to grasp right away just by his writing style and like we were saying before with how much he adds to you know historical facts into it to really help you understand but i was for sure hesitant but i love the name like one man caravan just sounds awesome yeah so i was like excited but i was like i have no idea what we're getting into here like and there's been so many books about circumnavigating the globe on a motorcycle that it could just be i don't know like another wealthy guy that didn't really immerse himself in it and just did it because he wanted to write a book. Whereas it's the complete opposite. Like I'm absolutely going to read this again. Oh yeah. It's, it's a phenomenal book. I even have this gigantic mess of, of sticky notes beside (laughs) me right now because I didn't want to write notes in the book. Like normally I would like put a bunch of stars down and like write little notes in the side. And I was like, like I did it on like the first few pages and then I was like, I don't, if like I'm enjoying this book so much that I don't want to mark it up. You know, I, I just wanted to keep it in the shape that it's in. I don't know. It was just normally I would write all my notes in there, but this time I was just like, I just don't feel right writing in it because I just enjoyed the book so much. And I'm like, I want to give this to somebody else and let them read it the way I did without having all of my ridiculous yeah. little, yeah. Cause it never makes fucking sense either. <laughs> and it just, they'd be like, what is this supposed to mean? And it'd kind of take them away from the journey of the book. I loved it, man. And I was not expecting it at all. I think there's something about particularly an American and I know there's, there's sort of like an American attitude and I, and I, I don't mean like sort of like the cliched sort of arrogant overconfident sort of thing. But I I certainly do believe that Fulton, just in virtue of what he's trying to do, I think you need to have like extra confidence or maybe like a a bit of an overinflated confidence right to it. And so I think that there's something about him and the fact that he is an American and that he has been studying abroad and that he does come from, it sounds like a bit of money, right? You don't really know how well off he is, but I think you sort of understand that you know, he, he certainly does have to ride to certain cities and towns so that he could, like, receive another, it's not an e-transfer, it'd be like a, some sort of a money transfer. Money, right? Well, I think it's money that was shipped ahead of time. That's like, right. it's right? actual physical money that had been, like, mailed ahead that he could pick right. up along the way. And so I think, too, that 
that is an important element of this because he doesn't necessarily lean on the fact that he's well off. I think very much so that he comes across as just a guy that's traveling and he's mm-hmm. not a rich guy that's traveling, right? Because yeah. when and we sort of kind of almost got there in, in your last comment when there's like so many other books about guys riding their motorcycles around the world. It's like, how many times have you heard like, oh, the guy's riding, you know, to the tip of South America, but he's got a chase van and it's got extra parts and tires and stuff like that. Or there's like his buddy in a truck and he's got a trailer and, oh, I didn't feel like the weather was bad. So I, I put it in the trailer and we just drove for a couple hundred kilometers. Right. Yeah. Or it's someone of, you know, some substantial fame. So you're recognized where you go places and so you kind of get put up in better places because people know who you are. And And so I think that there's, there's this sort of weird natural balance in the fact that, yeah, he's not worried about money. You know, you don't really hear about him worrying about how he's going to pay for his next meal, right? He might be worried about where he's going to find that meal, mm-hmm. but you know he's got the funds to do it. But on the flip side, though, like when his chain comes off or he's stuck in the mud or he falls through that bridge, right, or any of the other numerous things that occur to him that would sort of like make a sensible person just like turn around and go home, it's not like he's calling in daddy to to help me out like you know send a mac truck or send one of those steam steamships right, right. To, to come get me and so i think there's sort of like this there's this nice sort of honesty about it where i think at any moment you understand that he could just you know send a telegram and essentially get pulled out of there right because sure. right but he doesn't do that and i think that's sort of like there's an extra bit of respect that i get for him because just knowing that Man, if you're done and you've lost weight and you're sick or you're beat up or whatever, that you could just like get well, a hold of somebody. Does and get out. reach that point, right? He ends up getting uh, jaundice in Baghdad. That's right. Seven yeah. weeks in a hospital in Baghdad because he got jaundice. Like for a lot of people, that would be it. That, that's yeah. Get me out. But he just gets through it and has his own unique experiences because of that, you know. But there was one specific thing that kind of connects to this. I thought was a little bit interesting, um, was in uh, Beirut when he uh, needs a new tube for his tire. And he goes and sees that mechanic, and he ends up finding an Englishman, of all people, with some goofy store name. I wish I could remember the name of the shop, but he said he saw the name and was like, oh, that's got to be an Englishman. So in the middle of nowhere, we'd never expect this English mechanic. And he goes and talks to this guy, and the guy helps him out and helps him get the tube, and it's kind of hard to find. And, and then at the end of it, they give him the price and he's like expecting the mechanics expecting him to barter. And he goes, I'll just pay you full price. And the guy ends up giving him the tube for free because he's willing to pay full price. He goes, everybody comes through here and wants everything for free because yeah. they're on a budget or they just want you to haggle or whatever. He goes, the fact that like you appreciate that I'm doing you a favor here and helping you out and you're willing to pay full price or even more if you can, just because you appreciate what I've done for you here. I'm going to give you the tube for free because you didn't ask for it for free, which is like, it's just kind of a unique human moment. And you can't discredit the people that try to get it free because a lot of the people that do those trips are, you know, the funds are short and you really have to, especially in a time like that, like we said, it's not like you have a MasterCard with you. (laughs) Not that they would take it there anyways, but 
you're you have physical money that you need to pick up in certain places and if you your funds don't get you to that next place you have no money yeah <laughs> like in a place where you don't speak the language and have no relevant skills it's not like you can like oh i ran this credit card up i'm just gonna phone and get an extension yeah exactly like, so, that wasn't an option so if he wasn't in such a well-off position he wouldn't have had that experience you know so it's like it doesn't, uh, it changes his experience in a way, but I wouldn't say in a negative way. It's just kind of a new, just a different experience from anyone else that would have done it. But I do, like, I did also appreciate that a lot of the times, like, he doesn't just get a fancy hotel. You know, he's still, like, bartering a little bit when he can, and then he'll, like, stay with locals. Like, if someone invites him into the hut, you know, or there's probably a lot of times where he could have paid to get his way out of these prison cells. Oh, sure. And he just doesn't, you know, he like really lives the experience, even though he could have just gone, you know, kind of the baller status and spent his money to get through or gotten more expensive transportation on the times that he has to make a, an ocean crossing, you know, but he's always still just like, well, I'll get the cheap one and would stay with the bike in the freight area and whatnot, you know? So he's still like, he still really does experience it, but there's a couple of times where the fact that he's able to afford things Kind of just changes it and gives you a unique perspective on the adventure. There's something that um, sort of made me think out of your last comment there, and that there isn't an overwhelming amount of mo- other motorcycles on the road. In fact, there's almost zero. This is a time when, like, seeing a motorcycle on the road was a very sort of weird thing, right? Like, whoa, what the fuck is that? Yeah, you know, absolutely. And so, as I think about it, and we discuss Fulton and his. 18 month motorcycle journey. I'm getting more and more respect for him because sticking to the plan of riding a motorcycle, right? When you very much could have like just, well, maybe I'll just like wait here and get some extra money and then I'll get a truck and then I'll truck it, right? Mm-hmm. Or I'll get some sort of a vehicle or, you know, like there was no real sense that he was willing to trade off the motorcycle, even when it's banged up or busted up, like it was always like, oh, I just got to fix it. There was never like, well, maybe I'll just see if I can get another motorcycle or maybe I'll see if I can get another, maybe I'll get a camel or a horse. Like there's never, there's never an indication that he ever thought that way. Right. And, you know, it's something that I've heard of, like certainly heard of when I hear about other people, you know, they're like, well, the bike just didn't have enough power. So we rolled into a dealership and we you know, we spent a couple of days in a hotel while the financing figured out, and then I got a bigger bike, yeah, or something like that, right? Yeah, for sure. And so that only goes to show, like that, you know, there's this sort of like extra commitment to to the motorcycle, right? Well, you think about it, you're in a time where traveling around the world in the early 30s was already a pretty significant accomplishment. So if he had done it in a pickup truck or on a camel or whatever else, it would have been pretty impressive. Sure. It still would have been a great story. But he kind of just, like you said, he just took it on as like, I'm going to do this with the bike and this bike, you know, and you can see the bond. Like he still has the bike. He yeah. kept the bike afterwards, you know, forever and got it restored. And well, there's a photo of him when he's like an old man in like the 90s and he's still on his like restored Douglas twin, right? Yeah. It's kind of cool the way the bike really does and the way he talks to it and talks about it. And, you know, towards the end of the book, once he reaches America, he talks about how he felt like the bike was like yearning to continue the adventure. Yeah. And, like do more. You know, it's like it, it almost became like the relationship you'd have with a horse, you know, where he's like, I, it's this is my companion on this adventure. I'm not just going to trade it up for something else that might be more convenient. 
like a camel in a lot of these places <laughs> probably would have been, you know, 10 times better, but he was just dedicated to it. And I, I got a lot of appreciation for that. And that just makes me think of, uh, uh, just a throwback to the motorcycles diaries there. It's like when the Ponderosa two was sort of hauled away and Alberto's crying, you know, and there's like those two lines of tears that Shay's commenting on because yeah. it, it looks like, you know, the Roman num- numeral two, right. Yeah. And just having heard what you said about, and sort of like your comments on Fulton and like the bike almost seeming like it, it, it almost had like the sort of impetus on its own to keep going. And just thinking about the relationship that we never really understood in the motorcycle diaries with Alberto because it was Alberto's bike, right? And so I think yeah. that there's there's something there that is sort of like a recurring theme, even though it didn't really come up a whole lot in in motorcycle diaries, right? And certainly in Hammond, like he he definitely had like his favorite bikes, and I sort of, I think you got a sense of that when you're reading a very short history of the motorcycle, right? Because he's very much a, a character. In- I don't think you've ever got the name of that book right. What is what is it? The <laughs> short. used to call it a brief history, and then we sorted out that it's a short history because he's short. And now this episode, you seem to have added very. Oh well, poor Hammond. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so short history of the motorcycle. But I think that there's. Uh, that's sort of like an important element is that there's this man-machine bond, right? Right. And I think that unless that bond sort of occurs, and then I think that's when you get when people decide to trailer it or put it in the back of a truck or sell it or turn around and go home. Right. Because there's something there that sort of uh, excites that drive to go on, right? Because I it it would almost feel like that you're letting down a companion, even though that is just like a mechanical machine, right? And so I think that there's sort of like this underlying sort of energy to to the narrative, right? Where you're like, oh, okay, like there wasn't really an option to to stop. Like right. he had, like he was gonna, he was gonna go around the globe, you know? Well, and Hammond actually kind of alludes to that a little in the beginning of his book that he wonders if part of the excitement and the passion for motorcycling has something to do with our long history as a species, you know, with our deep connection to horses and how far they've gotten us through the world. And I would tend to agree, but I'm also a motorcycle enthusiast, so I have a bit of a biased opinion. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you like, you really see it. And the irony is this one doesn't even say motorcycle in the name and he sticks with the bike the whole way. And then yet motorcycle diaries, they get rid of the bike like halfway through. Yeah. You know, but it, I guess it kind of depends on what the point of the adventure is, right? You know, Shay and Alberto were kind of dedicated to this cultural aspect of the adventure, and that's where they put their determination, whereas uh, Fulton Jr. was a lot more dedicated to the fact that this is a motorcycle trip, you know, and he just kind of stuck to it. But one thing I want to mention here, it's just kind of funny with us talking about how it would have been impressive to go around the world in a truck or on a camel or whatever at that time, and it's more impressive to go around the world on a motorcycle. And yet, he crosses paths on this trip, and it's the most brief mention of anything in the book. He just, I think it was, I can't remember where he was going into. Maybe when he was going into Pakistan. He talks about crossing the border. Oh, no, sorry. I believe it was uh, the Yugoslavian Bulgarian border. And he just gets through, and then he goes, at the end of the of the chapter, he goes, and then I, I was approaching this, you know, light on the horizon. And as I got closer, 
I realized that it was a man walking backwards with a light on his shoulder. And that's basically all it says. That's it. It turns out that that was Plenty Lawrence Wingo, who is credited with (laughs) the world record for the greatest extent of reversed pedestrianism. (laughs) (laughs) What a phrase. (laughs) Right. He attempted walking around the world backwards. It just makes me wonder, what are like what is wrong with us? <laughs> like, like it's inspiring, but it's crazy to think that at a time where it would have been very it would have been a huge accomplishment to do it on a camel or in a truck or whatever. We would have been interested in any of it. It's extremely impressive to do it on a motorcycle. And then yet someone is like, I'm gonna walk backwards around the world. Yeah. And then they cross paths. Yeah. Yeah, and they happen to cross paths. But it's just so funny that it's like People are just willing to do this, these extreme things for no real uh, credit, I guess. Like, I think he did it with the idea of setting a world record, but it's not like there's a prize. It's not like, hey, congratulations, man, you walked backwards the farthest. And I wish I could remember like all the statistics on it. I think it was about 13,000 kilometers he traveled backwards. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a lot of walking. <laughs> In, in reverse and uh and it's like that's the thing it's like you set off on this journey and it's not like you do it and people go oh, congratulations here's this lump sum of money for doing this they're just like okay welcome back well done yeah yeah i guess pat on the back and probably don't care it's just so interesting to, to hear like these two people that were both like i'm gonna do this crazy journey and then on the other side of the world cross paths and he had no idea and i wonder if he ever knew because um, I believe that guy walking backwards, his journey ended later than Fulton's. Okay. So it's possible that even when he got back, if he tried to like figure out who it was, he never would have known. Right. You know? And so it's just interesting to hear these two guys undertaking these like great adventures, cross paths in the middle of nowhere, and just like maybe don't even know who each other was. Like I would guess that Plenty Wingo, <laughs> which... <laughs> This is just an amazing name. <laughs> um, probably has no idea who Fulton Jr. is and that they cross paths. Yeah. It's just wild to think, man. Like, what an era. And now, if anyone does that now, it's impressive, but less so. Because like you said, most of the solutions that we would come up with in these crazy scenarios, they, they've been invented well after this. And so it's just easier to do. It's still impressive, but at a time like that, where these places were so unknown, these people were just like, I'm going to undertake this glorious and kind of dumb adventure. There's so many times in this book that just cracked me up, and it just kind of feels like like he's having fun with it. Oh, you know? yeah. On this like crazy adventure, and he's just having a good time despite all of these crazy things. Well, even as I was rereading the moment when he's in the Middle East, and he thinks that he's going to get drug away to this firing squad because he's upset this village, right? But he ends up going hunting. You still even get the sense that... He's kind of like not really okay with it. He hasn't really resigned to it, but there's there's a sort of sense that you're sort of you're still. I still got the sense that he was smiling, right? Like if if he yeah. if he was sort of like enjoying it, even in all the hardship, I still got the sense that he would have been enjoying that, like right into the. He, he would have been like one of those wily characters that you see that sort of like survives, you know, getting you know hung or shot at, right? Like he would have been one of those guys that would have survived you know, his own execution, it, it seemed. Just because he had 
the, the, some like an attitude that would have sort of prevailed it in some mm. sort of weird way, right? I'd like to think that has something to do with like a deep appreciation for adventure and the unknown. You know, like it's scary, but it's also like I went out into the unknown and here I am living it. And it's like, maybe I'm going to die. Maybe I'm not, though. You don't know. So I'm sure if it was in the moment where they lined him up against a wall and had a gun at him, it might be a bit different. Sure. But when you're in this (laughs) moment where you're like, let's see, because it had had turned out in so many crazy ways for him in the past, you know, and he just always seemed to make the best of what was happening. And one of my favorite examples of this is the monkey. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can't remember exactly where he is. I believe it was in Sumatra. That sounds right, yeah. Um, it's a little later on in the book. We're kind of into like the last third, last quarter of the book, I think at this point. Yeah, so this is the second time he gets knocked out on the trip, the first time being on the bridge. So in the area that he's in, uh, these jungle tribesmen have this thing where they'll capture monkeys, make a harness for them and a long leash, and then they'll get them to run up the tree, and the monkey will like grab a coconut or something, and then they'll pull on the leash, and the monkey learns to drop the coconut like pull it out of the tree and throw it down so he's driving down the road riding down the road rather and i guess this tribesman had been nearby kind of up on the hill and had his monkey drop this coconut and it just so happens that the monkey drops the coconut on the road and hits fulton jr on the head and knocks him out while he's riding (laughs) so he wakes up in the ditch he's on one ditch motorcycles in the other one and he's trying to figure out what the hell happened And the tribesman's gone, and the monkey is still up the tree. So in this scenario, you could have just been like, oh, man, I should get to a hospital or a mechanic (laughs) or whatever. But he decides to spend the time to try to coax this monkey down out of the tree. And like, as one does. (laughs) Yeah, finally gets the monkey down and brings it with him for like a week on the motorcycle. I was laughing so hard when I read that because like even just this whole scenario is funny enough. But to be like, you just imagine you're like in the jungle you have no idea what's happening. Like nowadays, we'd probably be like, I got a selfie with this monkey that hit me in the head with a coconut. This is hilarious. But I could just imagine him like sitting there on the side of the road, like concussed, like looking at this monkey, looking at his motorcycle, like, let's see what happens. And he just like sets it on the back, like this mostly wild monkey. Yeah. Just sets it on the back and goes for a ride. And the monkey's like, yeah, cool, man. To me, like... You imagine riding down these crazy jungle roads, which are already terrifying enough, but now you have to worry about what is this wild animal on my back going to do while I'm riding? Well, and I think that's sort of what causes him to sort of like let the monkey go back yeah. in the jungle. He's like, I don't know, like this thing might start to decide that like, oh, I want to run the throttle now or something. Right? Well, and he said it, you could see it like kind of learning what he was doing. Right. And it would it just... It seemed too okay with it. And he's like, this thing might just start my bike and ride away. <laughs> so he finally just released it into the jungle. But he's had this monkey for like seven days. Yeah. I thought that was amazing, man. Just like take a scenario that could have been, again, could have been the end for anybody's trip. Like you're crashing a motorcycle, you get knocked out, you're quite injured. The bike seemed to be mostly okay, but some damage. And then you're just like, I'm taking this monkey with me. It's, he just has so much fun through all of these crazy scenarios. Like it's on the same road that he's riding down the road and he comes around this blind corner and there's these two tribesmen carrying a house, like a leaf and branch house. That's right. Like a hut, but they're carrying it like across the road and they go to 
like try to run to either side of the road. They're like, oh, we'll just get the house to the side of the road. But they both run opposite directions and just drop the house in the middle of the road. And he like couldn't decide if he'd be able to stop in time. So he just kind of like ducked and gave her shit and just rode through the front door and blew out the back wall of the house. <laughs> like most people would weigh the bike down. And he's like, well, this is going to be sweet. Like there's just so many times he does this crazy shit and just having a blast. And I feel like he really thoroughly enjoyed this no matter what. The amount of times he'll like wake up in a crazy scenario or end up in the hospital or end up in prison. There was sections of the trip like he said he crashed an average of 15 times a day. Yeah. Like that's insanity. Yeah. I can crash my bike 15 times in my entire life. That's right. You know? You know? And I, if I crash it, it's, you know, somewhere where there's a hospital within like an hour for the most part. You know? And it's like you're in this place where like it would be so disheartening for most people and to just keep going. You know, and just find a way to enjoy it and appreciate all these moments. I I think the story itself is great, but I don't think it would have been the same if it had been someone else that did it. You know, I think his, like, appreciation for adventure and his openness to these question marks of the trip, like, really, really made this what it was. Or even traveling with a non-monkey companion. Like, let's say there was him and a, a school buddy that... Yeah. Left from the UK, right? That left from that dinner. Well, I'll go with you, right? Like, yeah. it's th- just the way that he sort of announced it. Like, he could easily, you know, you or you, like, let's go, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, he didn't do that. And I think, too, like, it's definitely a different trip when you're when you're with a, with another person or a group, right? Or even if you just encounter somebody else and you're traveling for just, you know, uh, a short distance with that other person, right? Whether it be, like, a few kilometers or a few days or a few weeks or or what have you right but he's for the most part like he's just by himself and he's just figuring this out mile mile per per mile right Mm -hmm. like he's it's uh and i know we've already touched on this like the finance thing that aside right but like he's still finding it within himself just to like power through all of this and and like the title suggests is like a one-man caravan you know so that only like uh really for me makes me appreciate what a motorcycle trip can be For and, sure. and what it cannot be, right? And I think this is something where you're like, when you're thinking of bad things, good things, or or how things can turn out, like this is very much like a book that it just shows you that with sort of like a motorcyclist attitude, like you can get yourself, a cl- uh, you know, across the globe. And you can't fight the trip, you know? I think it was in this book, it might have been one of the other ones we've read, but they made an analogy to like riding a motorcycle in the sand is the same as riding a motorcycle on an adventure. You know, like if you're in the sand and you fight the bike, it's not, it's, you're not helping yourself. You know, you kind of got to let it track and pick a route and go through. Whereas like on this adventure, there's so many scenarios where he could have gone a different way, an easier way, or just not been open to something happening, not been opening to open to going to somebody's house for the night or whoever he might meet along the way, allow someone to help him that he doesn't know that very, very well could have been taking advantage of him, but he just kind of doesn't fight it. He just follows the path that opens up. Like, let's see what's behind this door, you know, and it makes for such a great adventure. And I think one thing about him that I think really shows what kind of character he is, is when they're talking in the end of the book about all his accomplishments and, uh, one of many is that he designed this, I think it was a navigation system for airplanes back in the day. And uh, 
kind of like a manual navigation or something. And then he wanted to write the, the user manual for it. And he couldn't, they wouldn't let him because he didn't know how to fly. Like you have to know how to fly, even though you created this, uh, you have to know how to fly to be able to write it. And so he could have just been like, all right, I invented it, which yeah. is pretty cool. Yeah. Instead find a pilot. You yeah. Know. Instead he's like, I'm going to go teach myself how to fly. <laughs> and he like knew somebody with like a little single prop plane and went out and taught himself how to fly so that he could write this, you know? And I think it just shows the kind of character that he is. He's like, okay, this could be good enough, but it could be even better. I think too, and this is this is one thing. Like, had he not gone on this trip, would he been a different man? But I think too, because he was, I, th- I think he was twenty four years old. He had already became an architect, or he was almost there. He might have had one year of, of school left. I can't, I can't recall. But I think this is sort of something where, in hindsight, you you look back on a man, a man's history, like Fulton Junior. Go like, you know what? It. Even to a reasonable person, it seems insane that you would want to take this motorcycle and go across the world and hopefully not get shot by like an Afghani tribesman, right? right? But like in hindsight, when you see Fulton or hear about Fulton, there's like, okay, I'll just learn how to fly and then I'm going to write this manual. And you're like, well, of course you are, right? Because I think you can sort of start to draw the lines back. So the, the other thing too is like, it's sort of like, like have a friend or a family member and then you think about what you know of that person and you think of like something that you know that they did like back in the day and like that was the thing that you did so you're able to do this thing now i think right we sort of get that insight right that very very sort of like close insight into like sort of his confidence and sort of like his his attitude towards the world and and sort of just understanding the world and I think this this book like really sort of like jumpstarts that, right? Like maybe he wouldn't have been an inventor. Maybe he wouldn't have, you know, became a famous architect, right? Like maybe, you know, had he maybe stopped, right? He might have just like decided, you know what? I don't need this motorcycle anymore, right? So right. there's there's something about like having that completed journey sort of in your back pocket. It's almost like a line on the resume, right? Where you're like, I know that I did that, so... What's it to me to learn how to fly at this point, right? Yeah, like enhances your psychological tool belt. Yeah. You know, like all of a sudden you're like, I've overcome this before. Like I can for sure overcome that. And you can see it stack as he goes along his trip. Like in the beginning, he's super nervous about the firearm or, you know, the right before um, he sees Plenty Lawrence. He's in a scenario where they're trying to ask him for some paperwork, the Yugoslavian-Bulgarian border, and... He doesn't have it and he can't get it and he's like super nervous and he ends up seeing this truck that's just kind of going through the border and he says, fuck it, and just rides behind the truck and just crosses the border. Yeah. And it's kind of his first scenario of like rebelliousness. Yeah. And there's like, there, I get a sense of his anxiety. For right? sure. And that was a note that I made in like, as I was reading the the early chapters of this book. And then like fast forward to he's just cruising with a monkey for seven days. Yeah. You're or, like, that anxiety does not exist. When he gets thrown um, in prison much farther down the road. I believe it was in China, maybe. Anyways, he's thrown in prison and they haven't given him a reason why. And they've treated him quite poorly. It's not like most scenarios where they're like, oh, we're not going to tell you, but you're just new to this area and it's suspicious we're throwing you in prison. Like they came to a little restaurant pub thing he's at, asked for him by name and drug him there. That's right. And then right. stripped him when he got there. And so he's like, this is ridiculous. How could they treat me like this? I've done nothing wrong. And then he has this moment of reflection where he's like, you idiot, done nothing wrong. 
You've illegally smuggled a firearm <laughs> over every border you've crossed. Multiple times you've just blown through a border without saying anything. You know, you kind of like tricked your way into Afghanistan illegally. <laughs> like you've got all this illegal footage. There's all these scenarios where like the very first time at the Yugoslavian Bulgarian border, he's so nervous about it. And then he has this reflection at the very like towards the end where he's like, oh, I've kind of just taken for granted all of these things that I've done and got away with and realizing now that he's like, yeah, I guess if I am stuck here in prison now, I I have it coming, you know, <laughs> like it's just kind of stacked and he's become more bold about everything he does as every time he does one of these things, it's just he's like able to overcome the next thing in a little bit more of a bold way. He's just grabbing another gear. For sure. You know, in his boldness. Yeah. <laughs> the funny thing is, though, is like we've talked so much about these dangerous scenarios that he's been in and how he like kind of skates by. And yet he never really ran lands in any real trouble until he gets back to the States. Yeah. He goes all the way around the world, smuggling an illegal pistol, taking all this illegal video footage and all this shit, like just a bunch of different scenarios. And then he gets back to the States and somebody steals his motorcycle. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's gone around the world. Yeah. In some of the most scariest places people could imagine. And nothing happened. The bike was fine. He left it in all kinds of crazy places. And a bunch of times he thought he was going to get murdered or someone was going to steal all the stuff. And it just never happened. And then somebody steals the bike in the States. And he's like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and you hear that a bunch, you know, like um, the long way around. They went all the way around the world on the their two BMWs. And then they got rear-ended by a Honda Civic outside Red Deer, Alberta. <laughs> yeah. You know, like no problems all the way around the world until there. You know, uh, Henry Rollins has talked a bunch about him traveling the world and he gets back home and that's where he runs into the problems. Like we always have this fear of like running into problems in these unknown areas, but it's almost never those places where the trouble happens. That's right. It's so funny, like just to see it over and over again happening in all these adventures. How does this book sort of inform the sort of path and the sort of interpretations that we've we've had on some of the books that we've already read? How is this book sort of like a new tool? Because you now having read this, you can refer to it, right? You can recall stuff from it. And we've already sort of done that. We've already made comparisons to some of the other books that we've read uh, in this season, right? But like, where do you think like uh, the weight of this book, like how do you think that that's going to sort of like uh, impact sort of what we've already read and what we're, what we're going to read? I think uh, reading this book makes me glad that we read Short History of the Motorcycle first. Because like we've said, we've referenced that a lot. Like Hammond reflects on a man's connection to the machine, you know, and it really does help you understand in these scenarios why he would stick to this and whatnot. One thing I'm worried about, though, is that I really enjoyed this book. It sets the bar high. For sure. You know, like not even just as a motorcycle book, but as like I'm a big fan of history and you get so much cool history out of this of different places all around the world. You know, like it feels like a whole bunch of like 10 different history books in one Yeah. because you just get all this cool information and all these old stories and from all of these different countries around the world. It's I, it's going to be hard for anything after this to kind of compare to uh, Fulton Jr.'s adventure here. Like it's I'm going to read this a bunch of times and I've already as soon as I finished, I texted like a bunch of people. I was like, man, I got a book for you to read. <laughs> and I texted like 10 people and then I'm like, shit, I have one copy of this book. <laughs> well, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because as I read this book the first time, 
uh, I was like, I definitely had some of our mutual friends in mind. I was like, you know what? I know that this person and this person and this person would enjoy and appreciate this, even though that motorcycling isn't, you know, at the top of their agenda, right? Mm -hmm. And then as I was, it's funny because I was rereading some of the uh, chapters about Fulton being in the Middle East last night. And I was like, you know who'd really enjoy this? I was like, this person. And I was like, well, I've like, I already had that thought, right? So it just sort of like brought it back up again that Mm -hmm. I just, I'm super excited to have read this book and now that you know we get a chance to podcast about it but i'm like man like i'm probably gonna buy more ebay copies of this book for sure just to like get them out in the world right well and i like it's one of those books where i have some books that i've read and i've given away or went out to people with you know minimal chance of getting them back and i'm okay with it but this is one of those ones where like if i'm ever gonna lend any copies out i still want to have one yeah i always want to keep a copy of this yeah. book because i could go back and enjoy this so many times over it's really just such a phenomenal book for so many different reasons and even just understanding fulton jr just all of the things he's accomplished which is crazy because you don't really read it until the end of the book and then all of a sudden they're like hey by the way <laughs> you know it was on the world's first commercial flight which is crazy to think of. That would be terrifying. Yeah. Like nowadays, I'm still scared of flying. Yeah. <laughs> There's you know thousands of planes a day. Like the v- world's very first commercial airline. He was at the opening of King Tut's tomb. Like he invented the skyhook for like recovering downed airplane pilots behind enemy lines. Like just a fascinating man on top of what he's done with this book. So it's like the man himself, the history, the motorcycle adventure, the way he wrote it. Like there was one whole section, his whole journey through Shanghai, he wrote it as if it was a play. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. the whole script was written as if it was a script of a play. He, I remember he's on a boat, right? And he's like describing the acts, right? Yeah. And there was always like this sort of weird thing, like don't offer the captain a drink. Yeah. Right? Like, what? Well, what'll happen, right? You right? Know? Yeah. Then we won't, uh, we won't get into that too much because it is a great story, but I, the one thing I love is at the very last moment of that, once he's kind of figured out why they've told him not to offer the, offer, the, offer the captain a drink, right as he gets off the ship and is leaving, he's kind of like, I had half a mind to ask the skipper to join me in a drink. And then it moves <laughs> on to the next chapter. I was just like, it's just so funny. And the way he wrote the whole thing is like the script of a play and it's like different acts. And yeah, like there's no real reason to do that. No. But it added so much to it, you know, because it can feel monotonous. You're reading an adventure and it's kind of like, I went here and the border crossing was difficult. And then I went here and I didn't speak any of the language. And, you know, and then I left that place and the border crossing was difficult. It does kind of, it can be very similar every place they go. This book was really good at not doing that. But then for him to just be like, you know, 70% of the way through the book, be like, now I'm going to write this whole section as a play. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Cool. (laughs) And I had a blast with it. It feels very fun. So the, you just, you never get tired of it. It's uh, it's just a great book. It's going to be really difficult for anything after this to kind of hit that mark. That's one thing that I'm sort of picking up on is like, if you're interested in Robert Edison Fulton Jr. as someone who you want to know more about their biography, this is a good book to read. If you're interested in a motorcycle adventure, well, that's the reason why we picked out the book. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you're interested in that, you're going to like this book. If you like inner war, the inter-world uh, war history, right? You're going to like this book, right? Because it has like this, it sheds this really interesting perspective on places in that you wouldn't normally think as safe for Westerners, right? For sure. And even if you're just like interested in sort of like the literary aspect of this man's writing, right? Where it, it doesn't really 
it's not really like a big component of it, right? But he does sort of like, and we touched on a little bit how it, it almost feels like it reads like historical like fiction in a way. You're going to like that too, right? So I think there's there's a lot of different elements that sort of come together in this book in sort of in different degrees and in different ways. And you don't necessarily have to be dedicated to wanting to read about a motorcycle trip per se. And I think you're going to be able to get something out of it regardless, right? So Yeah, there's a lot of angles to look at this book from and appreciate it. And like I like I said, there was a handful of people that I really thought would appreciate it that I messaged right away, but I most people I know that have any interest in reading would probably really like this book. You know, well written, cool adventure, really interesting guy. That's just an all around awesome book. So what do we want to give this book for an octane rating? I think we sort of already sort of really talk this book up as high as we can go yeah like this is race gas man yeah (laughs) oh yeah this book is so good this is high octane fuel for sure it's funny man because like we had kind of some delays after this last days off i got sick and so we weren't able to get together for podcasting and uh i've I've just been so eager like i'm just i think i've texted you like three times like man i'm really excited (laughs) to do this podcast you know well and even the last time that you and i were face to face at the birthday bond spiel at the birthday bond spiel it was it was almost like we could have started the podcast at that table right because yeah and this and this and this Uh, yeah i was like i was like how do you like i'm like i want to start talking about this but i want to leave it natural for the podcast but it's so hard not to talk about man like i'm sure there's so many of my friends are like dude i we get it it's a good book like (laughs) stop talking about it so I'm just going to share some of the publication information on One Man Caravan by Robert Edison Fulton Jr. So this is definitely copyright in 1937 and 1996. So the copy of the book that we have, I believe, was published in 1996. Now, as far as I'm aware, this book is out of print. So when we were putting together the reading list for this season of the Enlightened Dirtbags podcast, and we were sort of ordering books and sort of procuring all of the literature for it, uh, it was it was kind of difficult to get two copies of One Man Caravan because they were, pardon me, taken taken out of print, which which seems almost absurd now that you've sort of like listened to version two and I uh, speak about, you know, what a great book this is to read. So w- both copies uh, originally I had uh, ordered through Amazon and unfortunately, that order was canceled. So uh, the backup was just to go to eBay. And so that's, uh, we found two of the same copies, uh, the 1996 uh, publication of One Man Caravan. And, um, you know, I'm not really saying this to uh, make you feel bad or, you know, sort of like slow down your own enthusiasm that you might have for the book. But they were like almost uh, $50 a copy to get these off of eBay, right? And so there's almost sort of like this... Uh, a scarcity now around this book that I think only makes it more interesting because it seems like a book that you would expect to see in like the 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 travel section at chapters or you know chapters indigo right um, it's it's something that you would uh, especially if they're claiming that Robert Edison Fulton Jr. was like the first man to circumnavigate the globe on a motorcycle it seems that this would be a book that would be in print today right. Or even a book that you you may have heard of, right? Because I know, like when uh, when you talk about uh, like the motorcycle diaries by Cher Guevara, uh, when you talk about uh, we haven't read it yet, but uh, Hell's Angels by Hunter S. Thompson, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, right? Like those books, like you could go into a bookstore today, and there you'll you'll be able to find a copy, right? You know, uh, certainly 
some edition of those books you'll be able to find. But this one, it's it's sort of like this, I don't really understand it, probably because I'm not like a book marketer and I don't really understand like business, but like it seems to me that this would be a book, One Man Caravan, that you would that you should be able to find today. But it isn't. But it also sort of adds to that sort of that excitement when you like when you discover something and it's really, really good and you're like, I don't understand why this isn't everywhere, right? It's like back in the day when you when you were like buying uh like used CDs and you just like took a chance on like a on on like an album that you're like, well, I'm not sure, but I'm gonna take it home, and then you just like love every song, right? That's sort of Absolutely. the feel. Yeah, that's sort of the feeling that I get having now read One Man Caravan by Fulton Jr. Yeah, this was a lucky score, <clears throat> especially with like you said, it being hard to come by and a little bit more expensive than the other books. We could have just been like, ah, there's so many other books we could get from the store. You know, we could have just been like, ah, this one's. Not that easy to get, so we'll go with something else. But both of us are now sort of these burgeoning avid readers, right? We both like books, right? right? We especially like books about motorcycles. And so when I hear about, and this sort of plays into, we tried answering this question earlier, like why were we sort of like suspicious of this book even before we we started recording this podcast? And part of the reason why is it was out of print. And usually when books are out of print, that means they're garbage, or there was some controversial thing. That's right. You know, like got the book canceled, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Right. But there was none of that. I didn't really know enough about the author, Fulton Jr. And I certainly didn't do really any research other than can we get this book? Can we not get this book? Right. And so having known that there was something about this that sort of like uh, caught our interest. And then now knowing that it's out of print, you're sort of like, well, is this just a bad book? And I, and I definitely had those apprehensions. And then as you're reading it, right, because you're kind of like approaching it cautiously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, okay, here we go. What's this going to look like? And then you sort of like let the clutch out when you're when you start reading, right? And you're in that first gear and you're rolling away. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to go into second gear. And then you're in third gear. And then you're in fourth. And then you're in fifth, right? And, you, and before you know it, you're doing 100 miles an hour. And you're like, fuck, this is a good book to read, right? Oh, absolutely, man. Like, I, I just never wanted to stop reading it. Great experience after great experience. And so well written. I'm really happy we've got this one in here. And I don't know, man. The bar set high. Good <laughs> luck to the other books in the future, man. Cause... So, so what kind of... Uh, before we sort of like... Uh, move on here um what are your sort of final thoughts on on one man caravan read it (laughs) i don't don't know what else to say man like there's it's crazy because we've spent quite a while talking about this and we've shared a bunch of stories that happened in here and i'm like looking over at my panel of sticky notes here and i'm like there's still so many little stories that i referenced that i would like i'd put a little note about because i'm like oh yeah this note kind of covers what happened here and I'm going to remember it. Like there's one here that just says backgammon with an old man in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> what? Like you, you would write them as if you're like, yeah, this I'll remember to reference that. But there's just so many crazy stories that you kind of forget them unless you wrote them down. Word yeah, for it's word. very rich. Yeah. Like we could go on forever and you, there'd still be things for you to read that you're like, Oh wow. So read it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should, before we, uh, leave this episode, we should uh, probably inform our listeners what we're reading next and what we're going to talk about in the next episode. Yeah, so the next book we're going to cover is Lone Rider by Elspeth Beard. She was actually the 
first British woman to motorcycle around the world. And I don't, I don't know if she was the first woman in general. They never really say it. I kind of forgot to look it up. Yeah, because the subtitle on this one is just the first British woman, right? Right. So it's not the first woman. It's the first British woman to motorcycle around the world. But I, I haven't actually seen any other females that have done it. Yeah, this is sort of... Uh, I guess before we leave this episode off, we can kind of like... This, this book just sort of popped up and we were like, well... There's a lot of dudes riding motorcycles. We should probably read a book about a lady riding a motorcycle. I think that was sort of our our reasoning for this one. Absolutely. And I mean, kind of think we picked the right one. It, it really does highlight uh, the difference between a man and a woman on solo travels like that. Yeah. Like, big time. <laughs> like kind of shockingly, <laughs> sometimes you're just like, oh, Jesus Christ. So that's, uh, yeah, that's what we're doing on the next episode. And uh, I guess uh, I'll start like... Um, if you want to reach out, and I encourage that you do, uh, probably the easiest way to get a hold of me is just at Jonah Condro, all one word, uh, on Instagram. Just send me a message and uh, let me know what you think. And I am enlightened underscore dirtbag. Always happy to talk about books, whether they've been on the podcast or not. You know, send us your ideas for what we could do next season or get in touch with us if you want to maybe get a copy of one of the books we've read. We're always here to chat.